1: And today we're going to talk about Mosiah 7 through 10. Bryce, this really introduces, or it's kind of like a switch point. We're going to get ready for a Abinadi. Yes, the transition from
0: King Benjamin to King Noah and how that whole story came about. And so this is a big flashback that's happening. There were two major Nephite migrations, a little bit of history, two major Nephite migrations. The first one occurred in 2 Nephi chapter 5 when Nephi gathers his followers and leaves his brethren. And they must not have gone very far because they remained in the land of Nephi. But the second migration occurs under King Mosiah I, which was Benjamin's dad. Apparently, they needed to leave the area, and they went north and discovered Zarahemla and the people living in Zarahemla, which were the Mulekites. Eventually, King Mosiah is crowned king over all of those people. But they leave the land of Nephi, which is going to be very confusing for the rest of the Book of Mormon that the Nephites don't live in the land of Nephi. The Lamanites do. But shortly after they leave the land of Nephi and find Zarahemla, a group of Nephites want to go back and dwell in the land of Nephi. And that's where this week's block and its history comes into play. So just a little precursor of what we've seen so far, two major migrations, which now leads to one group leaving the headquarters of Zarahemla and wanting to go back to where they
1: migrated from. That's right. Two main flashbacks in the book of Mosiah. The first, which is the one we're going to be talking about today, is the one of Zenith. Zenith is going to leave, just like Bryce said, and this is going to be the period from Zenith's life about 200 B.C. to Limhi about 120 B.C., so as you've read and as you've seen in King Benjamin's address, much of his address is located right in the 124 B.C. range. And these chapters, I can see why the people that put together Come Follow Me kind of chunk these out because we're not doing King Benjamin, but we're not in a benedi, And so it's this transition. And so with that in mind... The seventh chapter is going to be, like Bryce talked about, an expedition of people leaving Zarahemla led by a guy by the name of Ammon. He's going to go and he's going to find the people of Limhi. Limhi is the son of wicked King Noah, which we'll see in a bit, who is the son of righteous Zenith. They go and they find them. They didn't even know that they would find these guys. And so when he finds them... Uh, Limhi, not knowing who Ammon is, puts him in prison, and then there's this narrative where they talk and he finds out, oh my goodness, you're not an enemy, you're a friend, let's have this powwow, and then Limhi explains, oh my goodness, we've been in bondage to the Lamanites, this has been the worst parade of horribles, and they come up with a plan to get out, to leave, and to escape, and so they're going to have this redemption in a nonviolent manner. In chapter
0: 8, Limhi tells the story of their attempt to find Zarahemla, but they miss Zarahemla, and they go further north into the Northlands, and they discover the ruins of the Jaredites, and they discover the 24 gold plates of ether, which they then bring back to Limhi. So now we have a whole nother group of people that come into the narrative. So Limhi is kind of a pilgrim from the earlier Nephites who's talking about a group of people that went north. So chapter 8 is about the whole journey north to find the gold plates of the Jaredites, and who can possibly translate them. And Ammon says, hey, there's a prophet back in Zarahemla, and he can see, and he has uh, the, the means of translating them. Well, that's great. Prophets are wonderful. And then we had a little discussion on our conference podcast about what is it that prophets see. All of that comes
1: from Mosiah chapter 8. Yeah, man, that's all 8. And then 9, nine through 22 of Mosiah is the record of Zenith. But today we're just going to be doing 9 and 10. So this is Zenith, and so this is a flashback. This is Zenith from way back. Zenith was a contemporary of Mosiah I, 200 B.C., and he talks about leaving, talks about leaving Zarahemla to go back up to the land of Nephi, to the land of their inheritance, their first inheritance. He wants to go and get this again. And to remind you, the listeners, uh, the colony of the Nephites, they left. The Lord warned them in a dream to leave and to go down Uh, to leave the land of Nephi because they were going to be attacked. And so Zenith says, hey, we're going to go back there. And so we're going to talk about this as he goes back and, and how that works out. And then chapter 10 is the narration of Zenith and the wars that he has between his people and the Lamanites. And they have a couple series of of times of peace, but then there's more conflict and, and how that all plays out. And there's some really good—believe it or not, there's some really good application in these chapters, even though much of this is historical. There's not a lot of discourses like we get in Abinadi's speeches about Jesus. This is, like I said, a transition between King Benjamin and Abinadi's message, and yet these do have a lot of cool things that you can teach your family as you kind of go through the—I'm guessing as you kind of go through the quarantine continuation. There's a lot of blindnesses here, and so we're going to tie back to Lehi's dream, which
0: I remind you, we told you at the time, is a theme that flows all throughout the Book of Mormon, and so we're going to talk about some blindnesses here. There's Zenith. Zenith was blind in one particular way, and the Lamanites are blind in another particular way, and both of those blindnesses affect us today. So we're going to talk about how are we sometimes Zenith blind, and how are we sometimes Lamanite blind, and how do you deal with a child who might be Lamanite blind? And so there is some great messages here.
1: Good. So I'm thinking we just get to the meat of it with seven. Limhai is he's the king. Ammon leaves Zerahemla, and he finds Limhai and they think he's a bad guy and they put him in jail, but then when they get all that sorted out and they realize that they're friends, then they get to the real discussion. So why don't we why don't we get to that? And the the great thing about this is Limhai has had a major aha.
0: Um, I don't know if he had it because of Ammon or if he has it previously and Ammon confirms that, but once Ammon comes down from Zarahemla, Limhi's aha is looking back on his own history. He says, you know what? So much of this is our own doing, and when we start to change, then maybe this this captivity will go away. And so this whole latter part of chapter 7 is Limhi's awakening and his plea to his people on how they're going to get out of this
1: captivity. Yeah. So, verse fifteen, I like where it says we're we're in bondage to Lamanites and we're taxed with a tax. I don't think Joseph Smith would have written that. That's a really good Near Eastern way to write that. Or right? dreamed a dream. Yeah, we dreamed a dream. Taxed with a tax. And they pay a tribute of 50%, which is, I think that's enough of a tribute to keep them in subjection. I think if the Lamanites know that, hey, we've got these people, these Nephites paying 50% of everything they produce, they certainly won't be able to amass a war and come fight against us because they're in destitute poverty. And so with this in mind, they come to the temple in verse 17, and they have this discussion. The discussion is essentially this. Let's get out of here you know, we have a reason to rejoice. And the verse that I really want to draw you, the listener, into is verse 19 of Mosiah 7. And it it reads as follows. Therefore, lift up your heads and rejoice, and put your trust in God, in that God who was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and also the God that brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt and caused that they should walk through the Red Sea on dry ground, and fed them with manna that they might not perish in the wilderness, and many more things did he do for them.
0: Which is a major theme in the Scriptures, Mike. If you want to deal with your current circumstances, you need to look back and remember how many times God has helped someone in the same circumstance. And this is how the Scripture should play in our life, to say, look, if you're ever trapped and you can't see a way out— Well, do you remember a time when the children of Israel were trapped and didn't think there was a way out with the approaching Egyptian armies? And the Lord made a way when no one thought there was a way. You've got to remember, and if this is a major reason the Scriptures play in our lives, is the ability to remind us of what God has done. I remind you that the very title page of the Book of Mormon, is to say, this was given to you, this book was given to you, so that you remember the great things that God has done in the past. That has to be step number one. So those of you who are frustrated with quarantine over the coronavirus, has there ever been a plague? Has there ever been an affliction? Has there ever been a situation like this where the Lord's people were blessed and preserved and protected? We've got to always remember. Let's just love how he begins here. Let's remember what God has done in the past. It's so good. Let's, uh, let's always do that. Let's remember what God has done in the past.
1: And he's mindful of them. This is a principle, a concentrated truth package for application. When I remember past experiences with God, and I think about those experiences, it invites and brings me to current experiences with God. And so by remembering how the Lord redeemed them, They're opening themselves up to future redemption, and they may have to change some things. Maybe it won't work the way they planned it. And I think that's the second point, Mike,
0: is remembering is step one. But I love at the very end of verse 18 where Limhi says, I trust there remaineth an effectual struggle to be made. So remembering is step one. Remembering that God has done great things in the past, in your life, in other people's lives, in the house of Israel's past. Remember what God has done, but there remaineth an effectual struggle. I think what Limhi is recognizing is we're never going to get out of this current situation until we do what we need to do, until we make some changes. And so he acknowledges that a lot of our current problem are because of our, our past choices. Look at the very end of verse 20. It is because of our iniquities and abominations that he has brought us into this bondage. Verse 25, if this people had not fallen into transgression, the Lord would not have suffered that this great evil should have come upon us. And so I think remembering what God has done is step one, and then acknowledging that we've made some bad decisions in the past, and those decisions need to change. But then comes the promise, if you change— Then will the Lord deliver you. Verse 33 is not only descriptive of Limhi's people, but every single one of us. But if ye will turn to the Lord with full purpose of heart and put your trust in him and serve him with all diligence of mind, if you do this, he will, according to his own will and pleasure, deliver you out of bondage. If you change, He will deliver you. Now let's, let's follow that. Let's chain that a few chapters down. If you'll turn to Mosiah chapter 29, verse 20. Now this is Mosiah, King Mosiah the second, who's turning the kingdom into a system of judges, looking back on its history. And he's kind of looking back on the story of King Noah and Limhi. And he makes this acknowledgement. Verse 20, Mosiah 29, 20. "...but behold, he did deliver them, because they did humble themselves before him, and because they cried mightily unto him, he did deliver them out of bondage. And thus doth the Lord work with his power in all cases among the children of men, extending the arm of mercy towards them that put their trust in him." That's the effectual struggle that has to be made. In times of trouble, we have to put our trust in him, and change the things that we need to change, and then comes deliverance. A couple more. Go to Alma chapter 58. These are the war years. Alma chapter 58, verses 10 and 11. So kind of coming towards the end of the war years, the Scriptures say the following, Therefore, we did pour out our souls in prayer to God that he would strengthen us and deliver us out of the hands of our enemies. Yea, and also give us strength that we might retain our cities, our lands, our possessions for the support of our people. Yea, and it came to pass that the Lord did visit us with assurances that he would deliver us. Yea, insomuch that he did speak to our souls and did grant us great faith and did cause that we should hope for our deliverance in him. See, that that's that same pattern. In a trial. When we need deliverance, we put our trust in God, and that trust and our change often bring about the change. And sometimes it's his timing. It's his timing, but it's my timing to put my trust in him. Let's do one more. Third Nephi chapter 4, this is where the, the, the great battle with the Gadianton robbers prior to the coming of the Savior, all the righteous people gather against the Gadianton robbers. So, Third Nephi chapter 4, verse 33, And their hearts were swollen with joy unto the gushing out of many tears, because of the great goodness of God in delivering them out of the hands of their enemies. Ready? And they knew it was because of their repentance and their humility that they had been delivered from an everlasting destruction. That's a significant pattern in the Scriptures that when you are in bondage, you remember the Lord, acknowledge that maybe some bad decisions in the past have contributed to this situation, so you repent, you change, and you put your trust in God. And when you do that, eventually, in His timing, deliverance comes. Deliverance always comes when we repent and humbly trust Him.
1: And even if we're not being delivered right away, we can choose to be like limb high. We can choose to be humble because they are not immediately uh, delivered. But the deliverance can be spiritual as well. I had an experience one time. I, Bryce, I hate the cold. And it's, it's a wonder I ever moved to Utah. Mike who grew up in California is saying he hates the cold. I, I just hate it. To me, you know, it's coat weather. If it's 65, I have to have a coat on. And Bryce knows this about me. I'm always cold. And so July in Utah is probably my favorite time. You know, I got a mission call to Chicago. And frankly, I wasn't really that excited about it at the time. Now, I loved my mission. But when I got the mission call, I thought, how am I going to endure the cold? I've heard it was the Windy City. And I'm like, I'm never going to make it. It's going to be awful. And I remember, Bryce, my first winter in 1990. And the wind came off the lake. And I was I was working on the Gold Coast off Lake Michigan right there in Chicago. And that wind was coming up. And it just came through me. And it didn't matter how many layers I, I put on. And my mom, bless her heart, she sent me Battery powered socks and gloves. And you know, (laughs) they now have these really cool, have you seen those jackets they have now where there's like a heater in them and you can charge them? I would totally be having one of those. And so I had the battery powered socks and gloves and the hat and the whole bit. And I remember one day I was just particularly just sad because we were going to be outside a lot. And I remember I poured out my heart to Heavenly Father and I said, I am so cold. Can you just make it not blow? Make the wind not blow today. And I'll never forget, the wind kept blowing, of course, but right when I said that prayer, it was like it started in my chest. I had this feeling of warmth, and it just permeated at least my chest and all the way to my shoulders. And I remember thinking, okay, it's cold, but God knows who I am. And I, I felt a little bit warm that day. And I think that's a little bit of what's happening here in this chapter. I just love that phrase in Mosiah 7, where he says, therefore, lift up your heads and and rejoice, and put your trust in God. Like, we're in a bad situation. This 50% tribute is crushing us. But know that God knows who you are. We have these messengers. Ammon, this man that sent to us, is from God. And we're going to be okay. Even though they're not delivered, they see that it would happen, right? Yeah, and I think...
0: They could have escaped the Lamanite. They don't do anything unique to escape the Lamanites that they couldn't have done earlier. They get the Lamanite guards drunk on one side of them, and they escape. The difference is they didn't know where to go. They would have gone out into the wilderness, and eventually the Lamanites would have caught up to them and then would have pulled them right back. But now they have Ammon. And Ammon knows where to go. So as soon as we change and we repent and we humbly call upon the Lord, maybe it's that the Lord sends us an Ammon. And we may not even recognize that it was the Lord that did the delivering, but he sent us an Ammon. I remember as a child, we went to see Pete's Dragon. That'll tell everyone how old I am. We went to the theater to see the original Pete's Dragon come out. And when we came out of the theater— The car was dead. The battery was dead. And it was me, my mom, my older sister, my younger sister, and myself, and we were young kids. And my dad said, well, we can push the car and pop the clutch. The problem was, my mom was uncomfortable doing that. She didn't know exactly how to do that. But my dad couldn't push the car and pop the clutch. And the rest of us were way too young. I couldn't do it. My sisters couldn't do it. So we needed someone else, and so we prayed. We said a family prayer, and nothing miraculous happened. No angel came and started our car. The battery didn't all of a sudden charge up and work. But while we were sitting there wondering what to do, a gentleman approached and said, Can I help you? How about I push and you pop the clutch? And I have since looked back on that event and seen the hand of the Lord. He didn't miraculously change the car, but he sent an ammon, and now we have a way home. And I just love this this story here that as soon as they humbled themselves and turned to the Lord, which is exactly what Abinadi is going to tell them to do, that they were they were delivered. And I'd like to point out from Mosiah 24 to Alma. Alma the elder's experience that sometimes that humility actually brings about the deliverance faster than it was kind of scheduled to come. The Lord says to Alma the elder, because of your patience and your faith, I'm going to deliver you. So maybe our patience and faith can on occasion, now we're not never going to violate the Lord's will for us, but maybe our patience and our faith on occasion can bring about the deliverance faster than we would normally have been delivered. But It is my testimony that if we do turn to the Lord and put our trust in Him and serve Him, He will deliver us from all of our challenges eventually,
1: and we just need to wait for Him to help us. Viktor Frankl wrote, Everything can be taken from man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. Dostoevsky once said, There is only one thing that I dread, not to be worthy of my sufferings. These words frequently came to my mind after I became acquainted with those martyrs whose behavior in camp, whose suffering and death bore witness to the fact that the last inner freedom cannot be lost. Viktor Frankl spent some time in a concentration camp during World War II, and he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And in it, he talks about some of these things that are brought out in Mosiah 7 regarding suffering and deliverance and hope. And I just want to read a couple more that really hit me. He writes, The way in which a man accepts his fate and all the suffering it entails, the way in which he takes up his cross, gives him ample opportunity, even under the most difficult circumstances, to add a deeper meaning to his life. He also said this, For many of the inmates in the camp, the real reason for their death was simply giving up hope. He maintained that there should be some way of preventing possible future victims from reaching this extreme state. It was to me that the warden pointed out to give this advice. Whoever was still alive had reason to hope. Health, family, happiness, professional abilities, fortune, position in society, all these were things that could be achieved again or restored. After all, we still had our bones intact. And what a thought. Here he is in in, in a camp and he's looking at, well, at least I still have my bones intact. And I think no matter our circumstances, you know, we're probably never going to be in the situation of Viktor Frankl or even in the situation of Limhi and his people. But I don't think that anybody on this earth is exempt from suffering or bondage. And that's why, to me, the book of Mosiah has perpetual relevance. And I don't know if you remember that you said this, but it really hit me. You said this a few podcasts ago, and I was like, that is just brilliant. I wish I could frame it. The book of Mosiah has all these different people in bondages, different forms of bondage, and they all have different roads home. When you said that, that was brilliant, that this is a metaphor for us coming back home, but we don't go the same way but we all make it home that's the goal at the end of mosiah everyone
0: that journeyed away from their home makes it back to their home it's just gold and i'd like to i love victor frankl's comments i'd like to throw in joseph smith this is joseph smith in liberty jail the last paragraph of the letter he wrote in liberty jail said now liberty jail was awful It was an awful experience. Their toilet was a bucket in the middle of the room, and there were several men there. Joseph Smith was taller than the room itself. It was cold. It was miserable. Sometimes he was fed poisoned food, and he was driven by starvation to eat it. One time he vomited so violently it threw his jaw out of joint. And the last paragraph of the letter he wrote to the saints in Liberty Jail says the following, If you want to follow along, it's Doctrine and Covenants 123, verse 17. He says, Therefore, dearly beloved brethren, let us cheerfully do all things that lie in our power. And then may we stand still with the utmost assurance to see the salvation of God and for his arm to be revealed. That's Limhi's message. Let us be cheerful in our persecutions and trusting of God. And then let's just sit back with the utmost assurance that the Lord will, will reveal his arm. Joseph eventually got out of Liberty Jail. Jesus eventually said, It is finished. And like them, our trial will come to an end if we just trust him. One more quotation while in Zion's camp, which was another trying experience for the saints. At some point, we don't know exactly, but we suspect it was Zion's camp, Joseph Smith said to George A. Smith, his cousin, is that right, Mike? Was George A. Smith
1: his cousin? Yeah, George A. Smith was 15 when he got baptized, and he was Joseph Smith's first cousin. At one point, George A. Smith said the following,
0: Joseph told me I should never get discouraged whatever difficulties might surround me. If I was sunk in the lowest pit of Nova Scotia and all the Rocky Mountains piled on top of me, I ought not to be discouraged, but hang on, exercise faith, and keep up good courage, and I should come out on top of the heap. I love that. It's it's Limhi's message to his people. Don't be discouraged. Keep up good courage. Have faith, keep up good courage, and you will come out on top of the heap. And he must have said that while they were on—I just can't imagine a better setting for Joseph to have said that to his young cousin than on Zion's camp while they're walking from Kirtland, Ohio, back to Missouri and suffering a great deal of, of, of challenges along the way. But that seems to be a same message. Remember the greatness of God. Make some changes in your life put your trust in the Lord, and everything's going to work out in the end. Everything does work out in the book of Mosiah. Now, that doesn't mean that Limhi's people didn't suffer for a while, because they did. There remaineth an effectual change to be made. But in the end, everyone comes home. And not everyone has the same journey home, but everyone does come home.
1: I like that. I want to geek out a little bit about the text, some things that are kind of something that you might miss. Go to verse 27. So if you look in Mosiah seven twenty-seven, Limhi gives the reason for why Abinadi was killed. Remember, we're doing this flashback, and so Limhi says, Because he said unto them that Christ was the God, the Father of all things, and said that he should take upon him the image of man, and that should be the image after which man was created in the beginning. Or in other words, he said that man was created after the image of God, and that God should come down among the children of men, and take upon him flesh and blood, and go forth upon the face of the earth. And now, because he said this, they did put him to death. So according to Limhi, the reason why Abinadi is killed is because Abinadi testified of Jesus, his nature, his attributes, and so forth. And yet, if you go into the actual account of why Abenedite is killed, that's not the reason. And this is a very interesting thing. Bryce, I like to call this like the messiness of Scripture, the messiness of religious history. This is the way human beings tell stories, and stories kind of take on a life of their own. And we see this demonstrated in the Book of Mormon. And this is important, I think, for a careful reading of the text to see that we're doing the same thing and we're no different. So go with me to Mosiah 12, verse 3. Mosiah 12, verse 3, is Abinadi saying that Noah, the king, that his life shall be valued as a garment in a hot furnace. First of all, that's a simile curse, which is really cool. That's an ancient Near Eastern you know simile, which is what they do. But it's also Abinadi cursing the king. Now, there's 613 mitzvot or commandments in Torah. Now, did the Nephites have all 613? I don't know. We don't know when all this stuff was put together, but if they did... We know that one of the 613 commandments in the law of Moses was to not curse the king. That's Exodus 22, verse 28, if you want to go read that, where it says you cannot curse the king. And so Noah is going to use scripture to kill a prophet, which that's fascinating. Notice verse 4 of Mosiah 12. He prophesies of afflictions and famine and pestilence. In verse 5, burdens. In verse 7, pestilence. And we'll get all into this later in the next podcast when we do 11 through 17. And so I don't want to go too far down this road, but notice that Abinadi is being imprisoned because he's telling King Noah that he needs to repent. That's his message. And then if you go to where he's actually killed, go to the 17th chapter, And then in chapter 17, verse 12, it says this. This is right about when Noah's like, I don't know if I should kill him. In verse 12, it says, the priests lifted up their voices against him, him being Abinadi, and began to accuse him, Abinadi, saying, he has reviled the king. Therefore, the king was stirred up in anger against him, and he delivered him that he might be slain. And that's, once again, Exodus 22. Don't curse the king. So, you know, why are we talking about this? I think one of the reasons why this is important is reasons change historically, and and understandings of texts and prophets and arguments change. So l- let me give you one example. Typically in the church we say Joseph Smith was killed for his witness of Jesus, and that's true, and that's our approach to why he was killed. And yet if you read Thomas Sharp, Thomas Sharp was kind of the muckraker. He was the guy that wanted to stir up the hearts. of He was the King Noah of Joseph's day, and Thomas Sharp— is accusing Joseph of establishing a kingdom within a republic. And technically, Thomas Sharp is right. The Navi Charter allowed Joseph Smith protection. It allowed him to create an army. It allowed him to have his own laws. He learned by sad experience that when he was in Missouri, he didn't have any protections. And so he was able to politically maneuver the church to protect themselves in Nauvoo by establishing this charter, which totally indemnified him from all kinds of the problems that he learned in Missouri. But by so doing, Thomas C. Sharp said, you, Joseph, are a potentate. You're a king in the middle of a republic and you must be brought down. And so was Thomas Sharp right? Now, I don't like Thomas Sharp, but I understand his arguments. And so over the course of history, we see that reasons change and people have different motives and Eventually, Limhi over time sees that Abinadi was killed for his testimony of Jesus. And that to me is like the spiritual answer. I think if Noah were to come back from the dead, he would say, No, we were trying to follow the law of Moses. And then we could go around and around and have these arguments. But the reason why we're spending time on the podcast illustrating this is because you, the listener, are swimming in this right now. You're swimming in these arguments about religion. And there's the spiritual answer. And then there's the historical answer. And sometimes they don't jive. And that That's okay, because human beings are complicated, and stories are complicated, and people are complicated. And I like, personally, that Mormon kept this in here, that Mormon shows us the messiness and the reasons for what happened. But the overarching message for me with Abinadi is he's killed because he did what God told him to do. And anyway, I like that. It's a little messy. And then if you go a few verses down in Mosiah 7, we get another really interesting thing I want to geek out on, and that is where Limhi quotes the Lord. So go to verse 29. Limhi says, For behold, the Lord has said, I will not succor my people in the day of their transgression, but I will hedge up their ways that they prosper not, and their doings shall be as a stumbling block before them. I've searched the scriptures. I don't see that verse anywhere in our texts. Now, is quoting a text. And I think he's quoting the brass plates. I think he's quoting a northern prophet that has been edited out of the Old Testament that was originally there, that was on the brass plates, and I think that's who he's quoting. He probably is quoting Zenus or Zenic. Look at verse 30. And again, he saith, if my people shall sow filthiness, they shall reap the chaff before the whirlwind, and the effect thereof is poison. And again, he saith, if my people shall sow filthiness, they shall reap the east wind, which bringeth immediate destruction. And that's a little, that's a marker for me. The east wind probably wasn't what it was to the people in the Americas like it was to the people in the Middle East. The east wind was a symbol for God's destruction. We do read a couple of verses in the Old Testament that do talk about this, this idea that you can't do bad and be benefited. And those references are in your footnotes. Joshua 2420 and First 1 Samuel 1215 kind of teach this concept, but they don't say it the way verse 29 through 31 do. But back to the east wind, The East Wind, this is uh, from biblical scholar William Smith. And he wrote an entry in Smith's Bible Dictionary, published in 1970. And he talks about the East Wind. And this is what he says The Hebrews recognize the existence of four prevailing winds as issuing, broadly speaking, from the four cardinal points north, south, east, and west. That they may be inferred from the custom of using the expression four winds as equivalent to the four quarters of the earth. We see this in Ezekiel 37, Daniel 8, Zechariah 2, and so forth. The north wind, or as it was usually called the north, was naturally the coldest of the four winds, and its presence hence invoked as favorable to vegetation. It is described in Proverbs 25:23 as bringing rain. The east wind crosses the sandy wastes of Arabia before reaching Palestine and was thence termed the wind of the wilderness," Job 119. It blows with violence and is thence supposed to be used generally for any violent wind. In Palestine, the east wind prevails from February to June. The south wind, which traverses the Arabian Peninsula before reaching Palestine, must necessarily be extremely hot. The west wind and southwest winds reach Palestine loaded with moisture, gathered from the Mediterranean, and are hence expressly termed by the Arabs, quote, the fathers of the rain. Westerly winds prevail in Palestine from November to February. So why is this important? This is a subtle hint that Limhi is quoting the brass plates. And this probably wouldn't have had the same application to the people in the Americas, but he's quoting a text. And he's talking also about the nature of God, that he's not going to succor his people in their transgression. This is lending back to how it applies. When we change our hearts, then we're open to his help, which leads us to verse 33. But if you will turn to the Lord, and the word turn is shuv, and it means repent or turn. So if you repent with full purpose of heart and put your trust in him and serve him, then he's going to deliver you. And that's a big theme of the book. So thanks for letting me geek out on that, but I think that's really important. And so with that being said, we get to chapter 8. I just want to point out a couple things that we've already mentioned in previous
0: podcasts in chapter 8. Limhi's trying to find Zarahemla. Limhi sends a rescue party up north. They miss Zarahemla, and they find some ruins of the Jaredites. And somehow they found the 24 gold plates of the Jaredites. This is how um, we have the Book of Ether in the Book of Mormon, is they come back with these 24 gold plates. They have no idea what it talks about. Clearly, they're intrigued because they found this land with with ruins of dead people, and they found this record that clearly is the story of it. So they're intrigued, and they want to know. And so one of Limhi's major questions for Ammon is, is there anyone that can translate this record? And Limhi says, "Yes, there's a man among the of the Nephites who can. He has, he has this means by which he can translate. He must have had a and thummum and he can look and he can see. In the end of verse thirteen, he says he's called a seer." Now, from Limhi's perspective, he says, wow, verse 15, a a seer is greater than a prophet. I'd rather have a seer than a prophet. And Ammon corrects that in verse 16 and says, no, 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 a seer is a prophet and a revelator, which is why we sustain our First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve Apostles as prophets, seers, and revelators. But then we get this beautiful list in verse 17, what is it that prophets see? And I love this list. A seer can see things that are in the past, things that are to come, uh, secret things, hidden things, things which are not known, things that otherwise could not be known. And we'll talk a lot about that as we move th- throughout the Book of Mormon. One of the major dangers to the Nephites and the Jaredites were secret combinations. Well, if you live among secret combinations and you have a man who can see through the secrets… You're not afraid, and that's as we move into the latter days, we're not afraid of secret combinations. The entire word of wisdom is a warning against a conspiracy in the hearts and designs of evil man. In other words, a prophet saw through the conspiracy. And so I love chapter 8 because it really talks about the role of prophets, seers, and revelators in our life, that they see secret things. And therefore, it is our job when a prophet speaks to
1: trust because we may not see what they see. Mosiah chapter 8. That's good. Sometimes I get questions about verse 20. For they will not seek wisdom, neither do they desire that she should rule over them. Wisdom is typically personified in the Old Testament as a woman. And for you lovers of the Book of Mormon, typically she's talked about as a tree. And so we seek wisdom, we seek the love of God. I would encourage you, the listener, to read Proverbs 8. Proverbs 8. And Proverbs 8 is the message of the woman, and she's wisdom, and she's crying, and she's reaching out to the sons of men, begging them to come and to understand. And so I would just throw out Proverbs 8 and read and ponder and think about, but I like the idea that wisdom is personified as a woman. But however you want to view wisdom, to me, wisdom simply is seeking God's will. Wisdom is seeking the will of the heavens and following it chapter 9. This is the beginning of the record of Zenith. And so 9 through 22 is its own record, and they kept plates. So Zenith, to me, is following in this tradition of Nephite religion, where they write stuff down, and they and they remember things, and they also have access to Uh, at least some of the brass plates, because Noah and his priests have them. But I really like verse 1, Bryce, where it says, I, Zenith, having been taught in all the language of the Nephites, and having had a knowledge of the land of Nephi, or the land of our first inheritance, after having been sent as a spy among the Lamanites, that I might spy out their forces, that our army might come and destroy them. But when I saw that which was good among them, I was desirous that they should not be destroyed. I think that is is its own little lesson in and of itself, where he sees his enemy, but he sees something good in them. And how can we apply that in our lives? How how have you seen people seeing good in others that maybe they wouldn't have normally seen? And
0: if you remember our discussion on pride, one of the antidotes to pride, that our discussion on pride talked about... When there's a more, we think we're better, and we persecute. And we often do that. I have more money, I have more knowledge, I have more degrees. Whenever you have a more, you think you're better, and that you persecute and you put down other people. And one of the antidotes is to see that other people have a more as well. And so I think this is a major antidote to pride, is to stop and say, well, wait a minute, I'm sitting here thinking I'm better than this person. But man, they have some wonderful qualities. And when you see those wonderful qualities, you're less likely to take pride in your qualities because you see the good in other people. It's also a wonderful way to understand why people are making the decisions. So you look at a decision that you don't understand, but you look for the good in why they chose that. Okay, I disagree with what you chose to do, but I can see in it a good motive, And therefore, I can be supportive. We talk about councils in the church a lot. And sometimes a bishop or a stake president or a church leader will make a decision that wasn't what I counseled them to do. But because I see the intent, I can see the good, I can live with the decision, and I can be unified in that decision. And I can even go back out of the council and say, I support it. Even though we're not doing what I wanted to do, I can see the good in the decision. And I think if we just get in a habit of seeing that which is good, someone cut me off on the freeway. Well, I see the bad in that, but what if I saw the good? What if I saw that, well, maybe they're in a hurry, or maybe they didn't see me, or maybe it was just inadvertent. If I choose to see good motives and reasons in people... It quite often causes me to react differently. I don't get as emotional or angry when I pause and see the good.
1: Bryce, I always like to tell myself when I get cut off, he's probably going to the emergency room. He has a really important thing that he's got to go see the doctor for.
0: See the good. I I choose to focus on that good motive for cutting me off.
1: Now we're going to go to the other end. Because he sees the good, Bryce... He's overzealous. Zenith is overzealous, and he thinks, I'm going to go live with these guys, and I think it's going to be all good. And is it appropriate to call this Zenith blindness? Zenith blindness. And, this and is, no. What's he blind to here? So
0: let's, ta- let's go back to the Tree of Life. I remind you that the mist of darkness blinded them to, A, the tree, the rod, a part of the building, and the river. And those are four different types of blindnesses. Tree blindness is I can't see God. So King Benjamin's address is to overcome tree blindness, where we can't see the love of God, the goodness of God, the greatness of God. And if you will always see the goodness of God, it will prevent so many problems. But we are naturally tree blind, and we have to take those blinders off and see the tree. We have to see the love of God in our life. Rod blindness is where I don't see the things that lead me to the tree, like I don't see the value in the Scriptures, I don't see the beauty of the temple, or I don't see that the prophet is leading me home. So Noah blindness, which we have and will talk a lot about, is an example of rod blindness in the tree of life, where I can't see that Abinadi was my friend, Noah's my friend, but i'm blind to the fact that abinadi is the rod of iron that's leading me to the tree and the love of god and that's rod blindness uh river blindness is where i can't see the consequences i have never seen an honest beer commercial an honest beer commercial would show the consequences of alcohol as a society those commercials blind them to the consequences of alcohol so as long as i cannot see the consequences You can get people off the path. So let's talk about building blindness. Building blindness, going back to the tree of life, remember that they could see the building, but they couldn't see the foundation, or really the lack of foundation. Imagine seeing this absolutely beautiful building and the fact that I couldn't see that the main floor was just two by fours, and it was not well built, and it didn't have a good structure. So building blindness is when you are blind to the dangers of the situation. You are blind to the fact that that building has no foundation and it's going to fall. And this is Zenith. Sometimes we get so excited and we're so overzealous like Zenith that we ignore the dangers. This man is going to walk in and meet with the Lamanite King Laman, who has no intention of living peacefully with them. If you want to see that, let me take you back to Mosiah chapter 7, middle of verse 21. Mosiah 7, 21, Zenith says that he was deceived by the cunning and craftiness of King Laman who, verse 22, all this he did for the sole purpose of bringing his people into subjection or into bondage, meaning King Laman desired all along to enslave Zenith's people. So how dumb was Zenith to walk in and make an arrangement with King Laman, whose only motive was to enslave him? But man, he's going to act all, you bet, take this land, cultivate it, be our partners, all along intending to enslave the Nephites as soon as they had crops to steal. Now, those of us reading the Book of Mormon are screaming at Zenith saying, watch out, he's trying to deceive you, don't
1: be a fool. It's kind of like when you're watching those scary movies. Yeah, and you watch know, out, the guy's behind you. Don't open that door. Don't open that door. <laughs> so we're screaming at Zenith saying,
0: don't be fooled, he only wants to enslave Zenith's you. Zenith's
1: all, dirt, But Zenith
0: <laughs> is so overzealous. That's why we get to chapter one, probably the defining mo- moment in Zenith's life is right there, verse 3, I being overzealous to inherit the land of our fathers. And that's the downfall. That's building blindness. It's It's the person who wants to be married so badly that they ignore the warning signs and they jump into a situation that they shouldn't. And then when the building falls because it doesn't have a foundation, they're left wondering, what did I do?
1: Did you ever read the book, The Richest Man in Babylon? Yes. I love that line in there where it says, don't get involved in a business that you know nothing about. So if I come to Bryce and say, hey, I've got this really great business, I'm going to start a laundromat and we're going to do a chain of them. Mike and Bryce's laundromats. Bryce, all I need from you is $100,000. And then Bryce will say to me, Mike, what do you know about laundromats? I know nothing, but it just sounds like a cool idea. Sometimes we get overzealous to do something, but we don't know what we're doing. That's exact point. That's
0: building blindness. And Zenith stands as a warning to all of us. Beware of building blindness. Don't be so overzealous, so thrilled, and so enamored with the thought of living in the building that you don't notice how dangerous the ground is. Sometimes people make purchases that they shouldn't purchase. The consequences of that purchase will haunt them for years but they were so enamored by that idea and and sometimes salesmen will play on that they'll 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 build on your love for having the thing and they hide the consequences they hide the building they hide the dangerous contract you're about to sign because they're just showing you the beauty of living in the building this is building blindness and the book of mormon stands as a warning be careful Because Laman's intention all along was to do him harm. Why in the world would you have
1: ever signed an agreement with Laman? And yet, the Lord's so merciful, even though he walks into this and he's not smart. Notice verse 11. They had 12 years of peace. And then when they're attacked, the Lord's with them. If you look at the end of chapter 9, verse 17 and 18 and 19, they do have a war and they do lose some people, but relatively speaking, the Lord was with them. I mean, in 19, they lose 279 of their people, but the Lamanites lose 3,000. So the Lord is with them, and the Lord is with us, even in our weakness. Joseph Smith was so
0: stressed out with debt. After they built the Kirtland Temple, they they had debt like they couldn't believe, and Joseph was really stressed, and up comes a man saying, hey, I know this house in Salem, Massachusetts, where there's gold in the basement. If we go there, we can buy the house, and and... <laughs> the lord must have been up there just shaking his head saying joseph 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 what are you doing in section 111 is in salem massachusetts so clearly joseph against probably wisdom's better judgment, went to Salem thinking this is how I'm going to get the church out of debt. We're going to find a big, huge golden nugget, and we're going to get the church out of debt. And I love verse 1 of section 111 where the Lord says, I am not angry with you, notwithstanding your folly which is a great tribute to the company. The Lord's just saying, look, don't be foolish. Don't be building blind. But even even when you are building blind, I'm still going to help you
1: out. And I love that dinner of scripture. Sometimes people accuse Joseph Smith of self-aggrandizement, and yet if he was full of self-aggrandizement, how many times in the Revelation <laughs> does the Lord just take it to him and yep. tell him, Joseph, you're doing it wrong, and, and then he repents and he's corrected. And I love that. I love that Joseph can be a prophet and still be a person, and God works with them and he works with us. And he works with Zenith, even in Zenith's stupidity. It's not the end of the world. You're going to be okay. You know, so that's that's nine. We're going to talk about Lamanite blindness here. But before we do, I just have to go to the end. Go to the end of chapter 10. So Zenith gets old in verse 10. It says, And now I, being old, did confer the kingdom upon one of my sons. Therefore, I say no more, and may the Lord bless my people. <laughs> and the son is Noah. And I'm like, what are you thinking, Zennif? You make so many bad decisions. Your final decision is putting Noah in charge. Yeah, you need the Lord's blessings. But that, that's kind of the end of Mosiah 10. So in my estimation, Zennif isn't the best decision maker. But there's one thing he gets right, right? He knows who the Lord is. So with that being said, I want to geek out about how the ancients viewed their enemies. There's a really great book called The Context of Scripture, and it's multiple volumes, and it's a little pricey, but one of the things that this book has done for me, Bryce, has really helped me realize that so much of the ancient Near Eastern culture is everywhere in the Scriptures, and when we see this in the Bible— it's it's pretty interesting, and some people use it to say, look, the Bible is just borrowing from outside cultures. But what's fascinating to me is when you see it in the Book of Mormon, now we're doing something different. Now we're showing that this is really how it happened, that the ancients really did use these motifs. And this isn't coming from Joseph. To me, when I read this ancient Sumerian document, it was like electricity ran through me. I was like, oh my gosh, I just read Mosiah 10 from 3000 BC. So this is an ancient Sumerian document called The Marriage of Martu. And it's just a, it's, it's just a short little clip from this document describing the enemies of the authors. So many, many times in the ancient areas, the people would talk about their enemies as subhuman, Sometimes they would have them as bird-like or chaos monsters, similar to Tiamat. And in The Marriage of Mardu, it says this, depicting their enemies, quote, Their hands are destructive, and their features are those of monkeys. He is one who eats what Nana, their goddess, forbids and does not show reverence for. They never stop roaming about. They're an abomination to the gods' dwellings. Their ideas are confused. They cause only disturbance." They're clothed in sack leather. They live in tents, exposed to wind and rain, and cannot properly recite prayers. They live in the mountains and ignore the places of the gods, dig up truffles in the foothills, and don't know how to bend their knees, and they eat raw flesh. He has no house during his life, and when he dies, he will not be carried to a burial place. The description in the Book of Mormon for the Lamanites is so similar to the way the ancients described their enemies. The authors of the Book of Mormon describe the Lamanites. For example, in Enos one twenty. we read, Their hatred was fixed, and they were led by their evil nature, that they became wild and ferocious and a bloodthirsty people, full of idolatry and filthiness. Uh, so they're bloodthirsty. That's in violation of Torah laws. That's in violation of Genesis 9.4 and Leviticus 17.11-12. through 12. They're full of tumah, or ritual uncleanliness, Let's see what else here. We've got them dwelling in tents, like they don't have houses. These people are just like nomads, wandering about in the wilderness with a short skin, girdle about their loins, and their heads shaven. That's in violation of Torah, Leviticus 19.27. And then it says, they were continually seeking to destroy us. So that's Enos' description of the Lamanites. And then you get to Mosiah 10. The Nephites describe themselves as the good guys, right? In verse 4 of Mosiah 10, they till the ground, so they're good at, you know, raising grain, it says that they raise grain and fruit of every kind. And then it says, their women spin and toiled and worked, all men are fine linen and cloth, and they cover their nakedness and they had peace. And so you compare that to how the Lamanites are described, you've got verse 8, Mosiah 10, their heads are shaved, so once again violating Torah, and they're naked, and they've got leather about their loins. And then you got verse 12, they're wild, ferocious, bloodthirsty, believing in false traditions. How many of those things in the marriage of Mardu are literally right here in Mosiah 10 describing their enemies? I don't think all Lamanites were this way. I think this is a typical way in the ancient world how we depicted our enemies, and we're no different. All you have to do is go to 1945 and look at any poster that was made in Germany or America or Japan or in Russia, and we do this to each other, don't we? Right. But whether or not all Lamanites were, this is a great message to all
0: of us because one way or another at some time in our life, we are all Lamanite blind. And I don't mean to categorize all Lamanites, but it's just kind of a title to use as we go through this. And so one of the great gifts, I think one of the great blessings of the Book of Mormon is to have this blindness spelled out to the detail that we're about to read and then recognize it in our own lives and say, Oh my goodness, I do that all the time. And I will just preface, I can't tell you how many times looking back I have been Lamanite blind. And to have it in the text and to remember it is helpful to avoid it. So let's start in verse 12, Mosiah chapter 10, verse 12, speaking of the Lamanites, they were a wild and a ferocious and a bloodthirsty people, believing in the tradition of their fathers, which is this. Ready? This is just gold here. The Lamanite tradition is this. Now, go through the rest of verse 12 and and all of verse 13 and see if you can identify a a common word.
1: We should circle this word. Get your
0: pens out. I would get your, yeah, get your pens out and circle this. If you've got electronic scriptures, highlight this word. Three times it appears in 12 and 13. No matter what happened, the Lamanites saw that they were being wronged. There's the word. They were wronged in the wilderness. They were wronged while crossing the sea. They were wronged in the land. They were always wronged. And that's when the blinders come on, is I'm being wronged. Now, this has a, a sound to it. Ready? You, you make this sound when you're feeling wrong. The sound is, uh. <laughs> and I can't tell you how many times I hear that in my home with my children. Uh. We hear it all the time. That's the sound of I'm being wrong. This isn't fair. So imagine, you you know, like my wife and I have often encouraged our children that have a job and work to pay for their clothes in a way of helping them learn to take care of themselves. If you've got a job and you work throughout the summer, we'd like you to buy your own school clothes. And then my wife comes home with three pairs of jeans for one of the kids that doesn't have a job. Now, what's the older kid going to say when my wife walks in the house with three pairs of jeans? (laughs) In other words, I'm being wronged. Why are you making me buy my clothes, and you just went out and bought three pairs of jeans for him? I'm being wronged. And we we say things like, what did I do wrong to deserve this?
1: Or it's not fair. It's
0: not fair. And we accuse God of wronging us. Or people leave the church because a bishop said something, and uh, how dare he say that? It's the feeling of I'm wronged. Now, what's the next word? In 14, 15, and 16, watch for another repeated word. And then I would draw an arrow from the first set of words to the second set of words. Because once you feel wronged, the next word is? wrath. You get wroth. Yeah. You get wrath. And so four times in 14, 15, and 16, they were wroth. They were also wroth. They were wrath. Wroth. You feel wronged and you get wroth. I think we've all watched American Idol. Remember the days where they show the really bad singers and the judges come out and say something? Remember the days when it was Simon Cowell and Randy Jackson? Yeah, I think that's who it was. And they would say, you're a horrible singer in essence. And the people would, what? What? I'm the best singer on earth. And they would, you, they would literally get fuming mad that judges judge them to be poor quality singers. They felt wronged, and they were wroth. And it's so common in our society, I feel wronged, I'm going to get angry. And quite often, it's mom and dad who are the victims of that anger. It's very common in the church to have children who are Lamanite blind when they feel wronged, and they're getting wroth. Now, verse 17,
1: what happens when you feel wronged and you're wrong? This is where, in my estimation, Bryce, it really steps up. We're at a whole new level here because verse 17 says that they are full of hate, but it not only says that they're full of hate, but look what it says. They've taught their children to hate and to so, murder and to rob. So this is a whole new level. Yeah. The next step is you hate and want to hurt. And this
0: is what Lamanite blind children do to their parents. I feel wronged. I'm angry. Now I want to hurt my parents. And so they quite often leave the church, right? I know how to hurt my parents. I know exactly what will hurt my parents. I'm walking away from what they hold sacred and dear.
1: And while they're walking away, Bryce, they're throwing bombs. And I'm
0: going to throw bombs at you. No one knows how to hurt a parent more than a child. And I know exactly how to hurt my mom and dad. Therefore, quite often, they walk away from the church, not because they've decided that so much of the church's teachings are false, but often it's because I know how to hurt my mom and dad.
1: I know how to hurt God. So what kind of advice would you give? Let's say you're speaking to someone who has a child in this situation. Clearly, we love our children. But if they are steeped in Lamanite blindness and they're hating and they're full of wrath, you can't change them. So let's go back to the
0: answer. Let me take you back to Lehi's dream, and if I can just shout this from the rooftops, there is an answer to blindness in Lehi's dream. Now, you got to be careful that you get the full answer, right? What's the full answer? The rod isn't necessarily the answer. The rod will get you through the blindness, but what will the rod lead you to? It's the love of God. What clears up the blindness is love. Love from God, but it's also love from parents. And so I would suggest that if a child who is Lamanite blind can still feel love, love from the parents, which will help them understand that love comes from God. When they feel, when they partake of the tree, the blinders often come off. Love is the antidote for blindness. Now, another reality is that the rod, truths of the gospel, are often what get us through their blinders. But in my experience, love is the antidote. I I am intrigued by the phrase, every time we describe charity in the scriptures, it says that charity never faileth. And I know there's a lot of ways to read that. One of the ways I read it is you can try discipline, you can try this, you can try that, but in the end, you should try love because love
1: never fails. It kind of reminds me of this story that Elder Eyring told in conference called To My Grandchildren, and he just talks about this grandma that had this grandson that was just so difficult. Eventually, over the course of his life, he was sentenced to prison, and she was just so distraught. And she just cried out to God in tears. And she said, why did this happen? I thought I was doing good. I thought I was being a good grandma. And as she prayed to the Heavenly Father, the answer came to her mind. And the answer was, I gave him to you because I knew that you would love him. That's just powerful. That's really what we have. That's what we can do. There's so many things we can't control, but we can always control how we treat people. I just want to share my witness that I do believe people change. And so I love the phrase, and this is nowhere in the Book of Mormon word for word, but I, to me, the Book of Mormon screams this phrase, and it's, God is not done with me yet. He's not done with me, and he's not done with you, and he's not done with your kids. So love is the answer. We don't have to change or accept their blindness. Their idea of what they think truth is, we don't have to agree with it. But I think the message is we've got to love them, don't we? And not only that, but I think there's
0: another antidote we ought to address. One of the best ways to help a child not be Lamanite blind is to not be Lamanite blind ourselves. I wonder where the children get it. I wonder where they feel wronged. Maybe it's because we have shared the message with our children that we feel wronged. That when the bishop makes a decision that we don't like, maybe we've... Expressed our opinion that we've been wronged. When God does something in our life that we don't like, we feel wronged. And I wonder if our children grow up feeling wronged because we have given them the idea that we feel wronged. I think it's common to do. We often see trial as a punishment from God for wrongdoing. And when a trial comes into our life, it's like, remember in John chapter 9, where the disciples pass a man born blind, and they say, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The assumption was that blindness was a curse for wrongdoing. And sometimes our own blindnesses, our own challenges, we see our curses, we believe our curses for wrongdoing. What did I do wrong that I'm being cursed with this for? Maybe we ought not to think that way. Maybe we ought not to send the message to our children that we feel wronged when trial comes into our lives. And I know that's a hard pill to swallow, but let me just throw that out there, that the more we take the message of Mosiah and see trial as an opportunity to turn ourselves to God, to be humble and submissive and cheerfully submit to the will of God, maybe we'll send more and more of a message that trial isn't a wronging and that our children won't feel wronged when we stand up for true principles and enforce rules in our house. They won't see it as a wrong thing. But that's a hard lesson. I think that's a hard thing to look in the mirror and realize. But I believe that's an antidote for children who have Laman, who are Lamanite blind.
1: I love this. I love how you describe this idea of Lamanite blindness. I think it's relevant today. It's amazing how these chapters, which are kind of these transitory chapters going from Benjamin to Benedai, can still have so much application. Yeah. I hope you, the listener, have enjoyed this as much as we've enjoyed making it. If this has had information on you, may I just invite you to share this with your friends. If you have people that you think could be blessed by some of the messages here, share it. I do believe this, that the Book of Mormon has application on just about every page, something that we can take and we can walk away with and say, you know what? I'm glad I read that. And I have a testimony that this comes from God and that the messages contained in here they bless my life. Everything that is good in my life came from when I was a young man and I picked up this book and I read it. And since then I'm not perfect, but I've tried to follow it. And it's every time I have, it's been a good thing. So thanks for listening. I got to tell you, I'm really excited about chapter 11 through 17. It's so good. So I hope you come back and listen again. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.